Hey, I'm Mason King, host of the IBJ Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can never miss an episode. Just search the Indiana 250 off the record. Thanks. This is the IBJ podcast for the week of October 23rd, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It might not be surprising that the History Channel is planning to air an eight-hour docu-series on the life of President John F. Kennedy next month to mark the 60th anniversary of his assassination. You might be very surprised to learn that the filmmaker who launched, researched, wrote, edited, and scored much of the documentary is 23 years old having been born a year before 9-11. Ashton Gleckman grew up in Carmel and attended local schools, although his ambition to work in the film industry was so great that he left Carmel High School after his sophomore year to work for a collective of film and TV composers. He decided to become a documentarian after a short stint working in Los Angeles, and by the age of 19 had created the award-winning documentary We Shall Not Die Now about survivors of the Holocaust. The film industry has had its share of precocious behind-the-scenes talent who produced noteworthy material in their late teens and early 20s, but it was interesting to me to see some similarities between Gleckman and the young John Kennedy. In this week's edition of the podcast, Gleckman discusses what he found so resonant about Kennedy that he embarked on the three-year project by doing his own fundraising and without any guarantee that the finished product would air anywhere but on his editing screen. Along the way, he picked up a producing partner in the Academy Award-winning firm Radical Media. Gleckman also lays out milestones in his lightning-fast and unusual rise as a filmmaker, as well as the reasons he thought the world, and in particular post-Kennedy generations, needed a deep dive into the life and legacy of the 35th president. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast documentary filmmaker Ashton Gleckman. Thanks for making time today. Thank you so much for welcoming me, Mason. Appreciate it. So we're doing the interview by Zoom today, even though uh, Ashton is a Carmel resident. Quickly, let's tell listeners where you are. So right now I'm in Appling, Kansas. Interestingly enough, I'm on an archival research trip to the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library. And this is one of the common sort of things that you know we get to do as documentary filmmakers which is travel all around the country to different libraries and archives and and spend days with archivists deep in the the you know the the pit of the library and going through dozens and hundreds of photographs and and records and it's a fascinating experience because you're constantly finding new things and this is just one of the many things that we get to do so it's it's always a lot of fun and the research that you're doing is this for a different project or is this some last second JFK work 
This is completely for a different project, for, right. for a documentary feature. That's my next project. How close are you to handing in the finished project for JFK, for Kennedy, to the History Channel? So one of the amazing things about the process of working on Kennedy was the fact that it's been a three-year-long journey. I started research on it in the summer of 2020, and then I actually started shooting it in the spring of 2021, and I think filming lasted between four and five months. So it was a big, long filming um, trip, and I went all the way across the country, 25 different states, um, everywhere from California, literally all the way over to Washington, D.C., and in between. And then, of course, you begin the process of going through 170 hours of footage. And that was sort of all on my shoulders because um, I was the only editor working on the on the series. And so little by little, every single morning, you, you get to the edit bay and you start going into these interviews. And the first thing I would do is I would watch every interview multiple times and I would take detailed notes of every question that was asked some of the great sound bites that I really uh, was able to um, take away from each interview. And then slowly but surely you start to build that, you know, with the narration and it starts to come together. But like any other feature film, you know, any other Hollywood feature, the final product isn't delivered until up until the very end, because you're constantly working on trying to make it better, trying to, you know, improve it. And I, you know, I don't believe I don't really believe in the term perfectionist because I think perfection isn't possible. But I think that us artists, we always try to strive for something that is perfection. We always try to strive for getting it just right as much as we possibly can. And so up until the very end, I've been working with the team at History and the team at Radical Media, uh, who are some amazing creative partners on really hammering in every fine detail for all eight hours of the show. So is it all in or do you have a little bit more to do? I think we have about one week left. Okay. okay. <laughs> and it airs it airs in about a month, which is very exciting. I'm going to ask you the last question first. <laughs> sometimes this works. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can understand. You know, sometimes you want to mix up, uh, you know, the vibe of the questions. After all the research you've done for this project and all the time you've spent contemplating Kennedy, what question would you most want to ask him if you somehow could do an interview beyond the veil? If you want three questions, you can have three. But I don't know if anything occurs to you uh, right off the top. I think the thing that I would ask him is you were born into this relatively well-off family who really got richer and richer as his adolescence continued because his father was a very successful businessman, let's say. And he's living his days sailing off Hyannisport. He's living in a big, beautiful mansion in um, New York when he was younger. He lived a life of luxury and of privilege. And he went to Harvard University, which at that time in history was, of course, something for the most premier class of society. So my question for him would be, you had all of these privileges and you could have lived your entire life sailing off Hyannisport. What drove you, first of all, to not only fight you know, to get into participating in World War II, but actually using your family resources to get you into active battle in the Pacific. Why did you want to do that? And also, what drove you to spend more than half of your life in public service? What was that driving essence that told you, I have to do something to be involved in really the story of the country and the story of the times? Because this was someone who very easily could have lived a simple life out of the public eye 
but there was something about him. And I think it had to do with partly the way that he was raised and the, the way that the other Kennedy family members were raised that said public service had to be a part of his life. So I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up with Kennedy tributes and documentaries on TV, seemingly nonstop. My parents were young adults during his administration. What is there new to say about Kennedy? Or could you say there's a new lens for for viewing his life story? I think both. is So when I first decided I wanted to do the story of John F. Kennedy, I knew from the very beginning I did not want to do one of those quick, short summary documentaries where all of a sudden we go from him being inaugurated as president to now we're in the Bay of Pigs and then now we're in the Cuban Missile Crisis and then it's over and then the assassination happens. You know, So I think a lot of times when we're talking about the presidency of John Kennedy, we look at these big landmarks. And again, there is the Bay of Pigs, there's the Missile Crisis, You know, there's the we choose to go to the moon speech, and then he's assassinated. And what's very singular about John Kennedy's presidency is that it was moving at such an unbelievably rapid pace. It's almost overwhelming when you think about it. If you look at the records of what he was doing every day, he was going from meetings on national security, civil rights, space race, the Cold War, you know, possible nuclear war in World War III, and then he's going over to the steel crisis, and he's giving press conferences all the time, which he was actually doing himself, which is a remarkable feat, just being able to go up there and speak to everybody in their living rooms personally. And he had this unbelievable charm and wit um, and would make these reporters laugh and would have a great time with the press. And I think that that is that is something that is so singular about John Kennedy is his presidency was moving so quick. So when I decided let's do a documentary about JFK, I said, let's do the full story as much as we possibly can without making it 50 hours long. So the first four hours of the show are before he even becomes president. So we're talking about his adolescence, going to school, going in World War II, rising from being a congressman to a senator, You know his participation in the 1956 Democratic Convention, where he loses the, the vice presidential nomination and then begins his track towards the 1960 election. And then the second half of the series, episodes five through eight, are really all about his experience during the uh, presidential administration, which of course, with his presidential administration, he begins in January 1961, and then he's assassinated in November of 1963. So it's really a thousand days, but the amount that happens in those thousand days is potentially more than some eight-year administrations because of how rapid it was moving. Is there some element of his administration that um, knowing what we know today is is of greater importance than we would have thought 40 years ago? Yes. I think in the decades since John Kennedy's administration, what's become very clear are the grim details of the missile crisis, which happened in October of 1962. I think at the time, the administration, including John Kennedy, but also all of his military leaders that were in the administration, did not know that Soviet missiles were actually prepared to fire. And if John Kennedy had launched an invasion, at that time, there is no doubt in my mind, we might not be here, or we would have a third world war that would involve nuclear weapons. It's more terrifying the more you look into it. But what we now know is that Soviet nuclear missiles were already prepared to fire Mm. at that point in the crisis when the decision was being made about whether or not to invade. 
So the fact that we had a president like Kennedy, who, again, he made many, many mistakes, not only in his personal life, but in his political life. But the fact that we had a president who was able to deliberate and also to take a second to walk out of the room every now and then when these life and death conversations are happening and walk outside in the Rose Garden and think to himself and pull himself out of this very pressuring environment and say, wait a second, I have a responsibility here to pull the world back from nuclear war. I cannot... I can't do what all these military leaders were telling me to do and launch airstrikes and invade. And that ended up being the, the, the saving grace of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think mm-hmm. that's one of those events that has really become clear in the many decades since the administration. So my impression is that many documentarians are interested in exploring events that happened in their lifetimes or that uh, but had a direct impact uh, on their life or... Uh, something adjacent to their life. You're a full generation removed from JFK. What about him did you find so compelling and resonant that you'd want to spend, I mean, three years essentially of your life? Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, You know what I think it is? I think it's the fact that, first of all, this it was this defining moment in American history. And I, I'm super into history. I love history. I love reading biographies and learning more about historical figures, specifically with World War II. I think I've always had this avid passion for studying and researching World War II and and the Holocaust and looking into my own family's Jewish heritage and where that comes from. But with this point in American history, it really is the the crux where, you know, a hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, the civil rights movement is now on the doorstep of the country. I mean, in 1963 with the March on Washington, or the space race where we're actually sending people up to the moon, you know, in 1969, of course, which is post Kennedy, but Kennedy's the one that originally made that goal of sending somebody to the moon before the decade is out. Or it's also the moment where the cold war is at its very height and, you know, possible destruction is just feet away at any moment, not only during the missile crisis, but also the Berlin crisis and also the Bay of Pigs, there were threats about nuclear war happening under the surface. So I think that it's this crossroads that without this moment in history, I don't know if we would be the same. And also, I think what happens after is very sad in terms of the trajectory that the country takes. Uh, We go from being a country where I see this footage of John Kennedy going over Europe and there's thousands of American flags all over the streets and people are cheering and waving. And just years later, of course, we are in the fires of Vietnam where we have 50,000 American troops. Uh, dying tragically in the jungles of Vietnam and uh, this sort of horror that happens. And then, of course, we have Watergate. And, you know, slowly but surely, I think we start to lose a little bit of trust in the institution uh, of the the government. But I think that looking back at this moment, especially in a time like now, where I think we still are struggling with some of that disenfranchisement of from our political, you know, world, Looking back at a story like this, where things weren't perfect, there were a lot of issues, and you know there were these social movements that were working to improve, you know, their lives and the lives of, you know, for example, the civil rights movement. But it was a time when people could actually, in some way, come together across the political aisle and have conversations and come together around certain issues, whether it was these, you know, these big um, existential crises. And so I was looking back at this moment, and I saw this young, charismatic president who was giving these amazing speeches and inspiring people and, you know, created the Peace Corps. And I said, this, we need a little bit of this right now. And so that was really where this project came from, was just the sense of, 
we really could use a little bit of this story. And I think that we need to integrate some of these themes and some of these ideas into, into our world today. You mentioned you are a big fan of history. Yes. Kennedy was a huge American history addict, for example. Uh, he was very smart, very interested in going his own way. Uh, I think you bring out in the first episode, he wasn't necessarily like a classroom champion, but he had a native intelligence uh, that was, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, propelled him throughout his life. Forgive me for playing uh, dime store psychologist, but did you see any of yourself in him? Because I mean, these, these qualities yeah, seem to apply to you. Yeah. So th- there were a few things and again, I, John Kennedy, I think one of the things that we underestimate about him is that he really did have a really interesting mind. He had a super interesting mind and was always reading. That's the one thing that I really could connect with him on is the, just the fact that I, I'll be just, I'll be sitting on my porch reading for hours and hours on end and going through whole biographies and reading stuff that a lot of people would look at the books I'm reading and be like, what's wrong with you? I mean, I read a 1100 page biography of Winston Churchill like last year. And I was just going through it chapter by chapter and page by page and loving every page of it. And I think that John Kennedy specifically, though, the thing that really got him to that point where he was so interested in reading is, of course, his health. His health was so horrible and he was always in the hospital and he lived most of his life actually in really serious pain. He was having back surgeries that were making his back worse. He had Addison's disease, which made him very, very vulnerable to passing out and getting high fevers and um, being very lethargic. And yet he has this amazing energy. But I don't know. I think that the one thing that I could really connect with to Kennedy is the sense of being interested in the world and being very curious about it. He was never a good student. I was never a great student. But he turned to books as a way of of looking into the world and always loved reading the newspapers. He was actually a subscriber of the New York Times when he was a student at Choate, which was basically like, you know, high school. So to me, that's amazing that this high schooler has a subscription to the New York Times and is almost he's almost seen as like a bit of a nerd. But at the same time, he had this amazing charm to him and came off as very popular to his friends. But he did have that academic intellectual edge that I really enjoyed looking into. I'm going to go on a little bit of a limb here, a little bit of a deep cut. Your dad is a longtime practicing psychologist. And one of his specialties is helping people who suffer from chronic pain. Chronic pain, like we say here, (laughs) is one of the main themes in the life of Jack Kennedy and John Kennedy. Were you able to get any insight from your father about what JFK's interior life might've been like? You know, one of the things that we talked about when it comes to this chronic pain, because what's so clear, I mean, you look at some of the footage of him and you can tell he's in horrible pain when even when he's just walking upstairs, his back is just killing him. And sometimes the way that he stands, he stands very sort of a little bit hunched over with his shoulders and he has his arms behind his back, which he's trying to sort of compress his back a little bit. And so you have all these contradictions. He's like this very good looking, charming guy, you know, who also has these horrifying health problems and it doesn't really, it doesn't all mesh. But one of the things my dad said, and also we we looked into the research is the simple fact that he turned this sense of pain into a sense of urgency. And all of a sudden it was now about getting as much done in the time that he felt he had left. 
And that also led to reckless behavior. As we all know, it's very well documented. All of this goes back to his health problems, I think, and also the way that he was raised in a, in a family where his father also was a womanizer. And that was something that really was pushed into all the Kennedy boys from a very early age. Um, but at the same time, there was this sense of urgency that really began originated at this moment when he was battling these health problems and actually was given his last rights multiple times before he was tragically assassinated in 63. So he was someone who very nearly died multiple times throughout his life. Oh, my God. OK, well, I'm going to tune in for that. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Let me let me uh, shift back to you for a little bit. So you grew up in Carmel. Uh, just real quick, where did you go to school? So I went to Carmel High School and oh, I want I want to know elementary school. Oh, wow. OK, so I went to Forestdale Elementary and then I went to Clay Middle School and then I went to uh, Carmel High School. OK, and you went you went to Carmel High School for a couple of years. That is right. So I went to Carmel High School for a couple of years and I made the decision and my my parents were the ones that sort of walked me in and, and signed me out. But I made the decision to leave after my second year of high school and began dedicating my time completely and fully, specifically at that moment, to music composition and right. film scoring. And I had the opportunities to travel to Europe to um, to study music. And I went to New York to study music. And then, of course, I was involved in already scoring films and, and working on that. I assisted on a couple of movies. And um, also, the composer um, Hans Zimmer came across my music on YouTube. And so I did some work for his company, Bleeding Fingers Music, in 2018 and 19. So I basically decided to leave high school uh, to dedicate my time fully to what it was that I loved and what I knew I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, let, me back, let me back up I, real quick. Yeah. When did you latch on to music? It was actually when I was seven. So, I mean, before I was seven, I, I was really like most people. I, I had no idea what was going on in my life. And as no. soon as I found the guitar, I was changed forever. I just remember that feeling of learning how to play the first chord and then learning how to play the first riff. And then slowly but surely, I just fell in love with it. And I, I formed my first band. I was, at a, I was literally at a fifth grade field trip. And I brought my acoustic guitar. And one night while we, while we were all sitting out, there were dozens and dozens of kids. I brought my guitar out and started playing Justin Bieber on my acoustic guitar. And everybody started singing and coming on the stage. And I was probably 10 or 11 at the time. But as soon as I got home, we started a band. <laughs> and that evolved it. <laughs> that evolved into the Rising Gravity Experience, which um, was my first band. And we recorded a CD in Nashville when I was, I think, 13 or 14. Okay, hold and, on. Uh, there are places to record yeah. an album in Indianapolis. <laughs> Why did you go to Nashville? You know, I had spent a lot of time in Nashville because there was this amazing music camp that I kept going to every year uh, called The Jam, where they would put you in different bands. And I met some of the people out there. And it just so happens that we went to Dark Horse Studios in Nashville, which was a lot of fun to yeah. record out there. Okay. Let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. 
All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with filmmaker Ashton Gleckman about his new documentary, Kennedy. So you have kind of an, an aha moment or a couple of aha experiences, I take it, when you're 14, 14-ish. You see the movie Imitation Game and you hear the score right. by, you're going to have to help me with his names, Alexander Display? Display? Yeah. Yeah, Alexander Desplat. Yes, and then you see Interstellar, uh, yeah, with the score by Hans Zimmer, who you mentioned, and then uh, your brain makes the executive decision: I want to score films. Uh, what happened there? What, how did you connect with film scoring so quickly well, and so uh, what, definitively? Right. What happened with this film, The Imitation Game? It's a beautiful film directed by Morton Tilden, and it is a film that basically documents the life of Alan Turing, uh, who was the man who basically invented the, the code-breaking uh, you know, uh, machine that helped win World War II. So it's a great story. And it has this musical score composed by this French film composer, Alexandre Desplat. And I was watching the film and I was probably, I was 14 at the time. I had just turned 14. And at the end of the film, I just started crying. And I thought to myself, you know, what, why the heck am I all emotional? And I went on to Apple Music and I pulled up the soundtrack and I played that last track on the on the on the album. And that was it. That is what did it. And I realized the fact that, oh my gosh, all of these movies that I've been growing up with and watching have entire musical scores just composed for the film. You know, they aren't taking music from somewhere else. There is music being written to the visuals. And as soon as I started going into that and looking at everything from the Lord of the Rings to Lawrence of Arabia. It's amazing the power of music and film and about how if you take film, it's one thing. And if you take music, it's one thing. But when you combine them together, it's like a dream. It's like something you can't describe. It's the invisible character. So I think in, in many ways, music and specifically film scoring is really at the very heart of, of who I am and, and what I do. And it it's a remarkable experience working on scoring a film because you're watching every frame of the film and thinking almost like a psychologist and you're trying to get into those characters' minds and thinking about how music can work to uh, translate what's working on screen and create some subtext to it. Mm -hmm. So I love I love film scoring a lot. So you mentioned uh, when you're 18, I think you moved out to L.A. briefly to work for yes. or is it Bleeding Fingers, which is Hans Zimmer's organization. Yes. And just briefly, what yeah. did you do there and then how did you end up back home? Well, I had been working for them for a few months remotely. So I'd been working on a lot of music remotely and was working on some pitches for different TV shows and, and that kind of thing. When I got there, what was very clear to me is that I knew that my future was not going to be being in a dark room for 17 hours a day at, in a studio in LA. And I realized there had to be something more. And I wanted that adventure. I almost, it's almost like a Disney movie. I seeked that adventure that was somewhere beyond the horizon. And I didn't find it at the one place I thought I was going to find it, which is Hollywood for that experience. And I remember very clearly, I, I told Hans personally, I just said that, you know, this experience, I am so unbelievably grateful for it. But I want to go back to Indiana, back home again in Indiana and reevaluate things. And it was at that moment that I made the decision that documentary filmmaking and also really filmmaking in specific was that next step beyond the horizon that I was going after. And I'd always loved film. I'd always had a strong passion for it. 
but it was only sort of natural that finally I got into making them. Now, this is this is just amazing to me. So all right, you're a young man. You said, <laughs> I want to make documentaries, which is great. And <laughs> you land on the Holocaust. Right. I mean, right. that talk about an imposing subject and also a subject that is that has been covered. I mean, one of the yeah. greatest documentaries of all time, Showa, is, is Showa. about Holocaust. Showa. Yeah, Showa. Which, by the way, so I when I was... I think I was about 12 or 13. I saw Shoah for the first time. And for those that aren't aware, Shoah is basically a nine and a half hour documentary about the Holocaust. And it's not a documentary with archival footage and music. There is no archive. There is no music. It is just people talking for nine and a half hours. And it is by far the most haunting film I've ever seen in my life. So I wasn't going out there to try to make Shoah because I don't think anyone can match that that what that film gives you in terms of the experience of the Holocaust and specifically Shoah is about the, the killing. It, it is about the death. It, it is not a film about survival and resilience. It is a film that is a meditation on death. So what I wanted to do was try to make a film that for people that didn't, didn't necessarily know a lot about the Holocaust, or for, especially for younger people and younger generations like me who might know what Auschwitz is sort of in their head, but don't know how it all connects to try to make a film that is really tells the story of the full Holocaust from beginning to end, giving a little bit of background information in a way that is digestible. So I set off to make this film and it turned into We Shall Not Die Now. And it was an amazing experience because I got to travel to Europe and visit all of the camps personally, specifically the the death camps, which were in Poland. So Auschwitz, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec, and um, uh, Helmno in Poland. So I, I went to all of these camps by myself there, there was no crew, which is why even to this day, it's a little uncomfortable working with large crews because I am so used to mm. doing things myself, including pulling focus, moving the camera, setting up the microphone. And so one of the things I've had to learn, including with Kennedy, but also my next feature is how to delegate a little bit <laughs> because there are these people that are more talented than you in certain fields. There are cinematographers that you want to rely on to do their job because they know how to do it better than you do. And so that's been one of the great learning experiences. But the Holocaust was my way into history. It was my way into film, really, because I saw Schindler's List when I was seven. And it really is at the core of my identity uh, is the story of of the Shoah. And that's always been with me. So what then was the genesis of the Kennedy project. Cause now you're about 20, right? Oh, and it's, it's the pandemic. We're in the pandemic. Exactly. So I'm in the middle of the pandemic and I kept having these visions back to being in school and seeing some of the footage of Kennedy's inaugural speech. I just remember like the fact that I was watching this old footage, but it was like in color. And this guy was asking, you know, what we could do for the country, not what the country could do for you. And I kept thinking back to that experience of being in grade school, learning a little bit about JFK. And I realized that, you know, the world we were living in in 2021 was a very scary or 2020 was a very scary world. Uh, there was a lot going on, as we all know, uh, whether it was COVID, whether it was the the social movements that were going on around the world. And I wanted to find a story that was able to a little bit give people some hope, give people a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of a boost in a way. And I found that the story of Jack Kennedy was was one that was a study of human behavior and also like the human experience. But it was also the study of, I think, a moment in history where we were able to find 
avenues of coming together. I always think about that one picture of John F. Kennedy with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the other members of the civil rights movement in the Oval Office after the March on Washington. And one of the things Jack Kennedy did, you know, he had to evolve on civil rights. He was not a civil rights icon from the beginning at all. But he went up to Martin Luther King and said, you have a dream. And he basically validated what he had just said out in his speech, that we have a dream speech or that I have a dream. So it was a moment where there was a little bit of hope on the horizon that I think the country was leaning towards, which, of course, as we all know, was shattered in blood on the streets of Dallas in November 1963. So it's a very conflicting story because there is that hope. But of course, it ends so abruptly and so violently. But at the same time, I wanted to go where not a lot of the documentaries had gone, which is beyond the assassination. Let's look at the life of this guy. Let's look at the legacy of him and really invite audiences and viewers into the world of JFK and live in it for eight hours. And that was what drove me to it. Okay, so uh, you think, okay, hey, I'm going to do a documentary about Kennedy. (laughs) So you start making a list. Here's stuff I need to do. Yeah. And I, I guess a list of people that who are still around who you would be able to interview. When you're doing the initial research, were there a few sources that you leaned on you, you felt were were authoritative enough just to help you sketch out uh, the life, kind of create a framework for the biography, and then just figure out what you needed to know next? Well, there were dozens upon dozens of books um, that I was going through. And I was going through, I mean, I ordered every single old magazine of JFK that I could find yeah. from the 50s and the 60s. And I was going through every magazine, looking at firsthand information from these magazines that were being published at the time. And then, of course, I was going into the archive, uh, virtually the JFK Presidential Library archive, and looking at the primary sources, whether it was um, letters that were being written, whether it was White House memos, whether it was his actual journals, his school documents. It's all there. Every single, I mean, pieces of homework from when he was a student at Choate and at Harvard, Um, There were recordings of when he was a student at Harvard. So I was trying to find every little thing that one could assume is just sort of miscellaneous or obscure Mm. and use that as a way of building the fabric of the character. So that that was really it. It was throwing everything at the wall and and finding what sticks. But it really it was throwing everything at that wall. And so finding every source of information I could find, of course, as much as possible, going back to those primary sources. How many people did you end up interviewing? It must have been around 80. I would just I would just say more than 70. I would say more than 70. But I think it goes all the way up to maybe 83, 84. But there was a lot of people I interviewed across the country. And there were some situations where it was me and my dad, literally. No joke. There was literally probably 15 interviews where it was like me and my dad traveling in a car down to the south. And we were going in people's homes and they were inviting us in and I was setting up the two cameras and the microphone. So it was not a, it's not a Hollywood scale production, which is what makes it fun. It's what makes it interesting is the fact that this is hopefully it's my perspective of the story. I'm trying to bring my 23 year old perspective into it. And that meant having as much hands in it as I could, um, you know, to try to make it uh, my own, but so many amazing creatives, the producers, you know, the other editors that I worked with team at history, the team at radical have all been so gracious in letting me do that and really supporting 
what was my original vision for the project? And it hasn't changed that much from my original vision, which is, which is, I'm so grateful for that. I don't want to make like a big deal about how young you are, because I mean, people have done great things in their early twenties. We probably share an admiration for, uh, for Orson Welles, for example, you know, yeah. Citizen Kane when he was close to your age. Uh, but right. I can imagine you like going down to interview folks and you showing up with your dad and everyone thinking that your dad is you. Right. They, 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 yeah, you were the crew is, and, that, and the dad was the researcher. That definitely happened a few times. Yeah. They, they'd be like, oh, so th- is this your son? And uh, I'd be like, yeah. So you must be Ashton and shaking my dad's hand. And he's like, oh, no, that's Ashton. Yeah, that's and, the filmmaker. <laughs> you know, that that especially happened when I was making my first film. Because when I was making my first film, We Shall Not Die Now, I was I was 18. I was 17, 18 years old at the time. So, you know, I think that there was this sense of, well, if I'm going into the deep end, then I'm going into the deep end. There's no looking back now. There's no excuses for age. I grew up listening to Mozart and Beethoven, and these people were doing things I could never dream of half my age. Um, so I think it's all relative. But yeah, I, I I tried as much as I could to get an early start because I have so many stories I want to tell. And I know that I only have a specific amount of time to do that. So I want to try to get in as many stories in my life that I possibly can. Um, how does, how so does one get in touch with members of the Kennedy family and say, hey, I'm a documentarian and I want to interview you? Uh, some good PR skills and um, <laughs> a lot of emails. I have to say, I was I was doing all of every single interview I, I planned personally via email or via cold calling. Um, it was creating databases of people. It was using the white pages. It was uh, finding uh, family members that were maybe uh, connected to them, but weren't directly. So there was a lot of uh, investigative journalism almost that was involved in that and reaching out and um that that was probably one of the most taxing things because again it's so much effort you're putting into just sending emails and getting back to people and scheduling you know interview dates and also i was doing all the travel planning as well so whether it's flights whether it's the car travel that we were doing around the country but it was also really fun because i got to i got to play producer and then when i'm in the interview chair play director. So it was, you know, got to wear a couple of different hats, but the cinematographer, I worked with Alex Ron and the uh, production assistant, uh, Andre, who were with me for about 65 of the interviews were just the most amazing crew members I could have. Now, I mean, this costs money, right? Even though you're doing it largely by yourself. I mean, this is, I'm sure it's pricey. And at this point, I mean, did you have any sort of guarantee that this would generate any kind of revenue? No, no, I mean, that is one of the things about when you're doing independent filmmaking, especially when it becomes self-financed. I mean, the the project started at a self-financed place, which is, you know, which was very important for me because I wanted to make sure that I was working with executive producers and investors and financiers that that I that I knew. And I, I went around Indianapolis specifically. All of the investors are from Indianapolis. They're all local, you know, people that I that I was able to meet. And there were some amazing supporters of the film, whether it's Eric Tobias, um, who is a dear friend, you know, and he's also the, he's with High Alpha, which is a local Indianapolis uh, company. Yeah, so and a, then a there two was time also, IBJ podcast guest, I, I will point out. <laughs> perfect. And Eric Tobias and his wife, Laura, are just lovely. And then, of course, um, uh, Dr. Ben Park and Teresa Park, who have supported every film that I've done since We Shall Not Die Now. 
And then Bill and Joel and Buffy, who are big supporters of the Indiana film industry because they've supported a lot of films uh, from Pegasus Pictures, which is another production company based in Indiana. So I was trying to find local Indiana Hoosiers who wanted to be a part of making some movies. And that's usually who I was going to for, um, you know, raising money for the film. But So fairly early on, the- you were approaching investors. Very early on. Okay, and I so, knew yeah. absolutely what I what the plan was for the project. I knew that the plan was, of course, to get distribution and everything else. But it was very much so a, a independent project from the beginning. And again, that is part of the story of it is that it transitions over time. And then, of course, I meet history and I meet radical and we all get together and we start collaborating. And um, but for the first while, it was me and two other people working on this series. And by the time that was all done, I had a 14 hour rough cut of the series and uh, <laughs> had written about 10 hours of music, 10 or 11 hours of music with my colleagues. So, so yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask about radical media. So you picked up the producer at some point when you had a product that you could show, uh, what, yeah. what is the role of, of uh, when you're bringing in a producer like that, what do they do? What do they bring to the project? Well, I think the the one thing that happened when I met John Kamen and Dave Sorelnik, which are the two executives at Radical Media, is these are people with so much unbelievable experience in this industry. I mean, they've produced some of the films that I grew up loving documentary wise, whether it's The Fog of War. Um, They did all the film versions of Hamilton and Rent uh, that I grew up watching. And I absolutely love Uh, Summer of Soul was just such a, a great film. So these are people that when they start talking, you sort of, you converse with them, but you listen and you engage with them. And they have all these ideas in terms of, you know, so I worked with them for a while to start um, working on, you know, shaping the series from that 14 hour cut down to nine hours, eight hours uh, or 10 hours, and then down to eight hours. And we eventually met history and history was amazing because all of the people that work at history are avid lovers of history. They are not just a bunch of random executives who could care less about it. They love history and they want to talk about it and they want to engage with it. And in some of the feedback sessions that we're all having, they're bringing up historical events and people and moments in time. And I think that's amazing is that it was a very rich dialogue with with, with history, our, our network partners, that they were really engaging with the material and that they are just as passionate about it really as Radical and I were. But I think we all sort of connected on that. We we all jived with it. And that's what's led to what we have now. So it's been a it's been a team effort, but it all started with three people here in Carmel, Indiana, uh, for the first year or year and a half or so. Have you scored the entire piece? Is it just I have, you scoring or do so you have, I have collaborator? I have two other co-composers, Michael Frankenberger and Cameron Moody, and we all worked on the uh, music together. And uh, the soundtrack will be coming out this November as well. So we're waiting on exact dates, but we'll we'll be releasing the music that we composed for it, which I'm really excited about because it's going to have a lot of the big moments from the show and some great sort of musical moments, especially from the uh, from episode eight. There's some very powerful pieces yeah. in there, and I can't wait to share that. Do you think about it in terms of theme? Like, and here's here's the theme for JFK as a young man. Here's the theme of JFK as a candidate. Well, I'll say there is one central motif in the score. It's called Jack's theme, and it's an E flat minor, and it's a very simple tune. Do 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 do. 
So it's a, a nice little motif. And I took that and sort of developed it throughout the show. So you'll hear it at the end of episode one. You'll hear it in an episode four when Kennedy arrives at the convention. And, you know, you'll hear it in episode, you know, all throughout. You'll hear it in episode two when he makes the decision that he wants to go into politics. So any moments that relate to him and personal growth, you'll have Jack's theme in there, oh. um, which I was very happy about because I know that, you know, with a lot of network TV shows, most of the music is from libraries. It's from production music libraries and it's pulled from, you know, just other places. So I'm very happy that with this series, which is eight hours long, it's a big series. We were able to have a original score, which I think is a lot of fun to be able to work on original music for a show of this size and, and scale. How did you come across that theme or what, what about it made it feel right for you for this, for this piece? It has a sense of, playfulness, but also a sense of reflection. It has a sense of somebody who has a zest for life, I think. And to me, I always saw Jack Kennedy as the adventurer. I always think of him as sort of the adventurer. He has a Forrest Gump quality to him where he's showing up at all of these moments in history. And uh, that is really the essence of, of him, which I think is so amazing. And I wanted the theme to really connect with that. So in the end, what do you hope people come away with, and, and maybe in particular people who weren't necessarily familiar with Kennedy before, what do you hope they come away with? I think the last line of the show, and this isn't spoiling anything because, you know, but everybody can make a difference and everybody should try. That is the theme of the show, is the sense that no matter who you are, where you're from, I think we could all do things for our communities, for our cities, for our country in some way of giving back. I think it, that was an amazing part of Kennedy's life. It's the fact that he served the U S for more than half of his life, first in the service, then 14 years in the Congress. And then of course, during his administration. And I think that he lived this life, which was an adventure. It was a life on the edge of history, but whether it was the Peace Corps, whether it was, you know, the Alliance for Progress, all these different things that he was doing to try to incite people to participate. And of course, we all know these were all programs that were a part of the world at the time. There was the Cold War happening and everything else. But he was also someone who saw the benefit of sending Americans around the country, around the around the world with the Peace Corps and having them do positive things in communities all around the world. And in a time where things are really, really hard and we look at the TV every day and we're really confused with what's going on, I hope that viewers can turn on this documentary and sit back and first of all, just enjoy a exciting documentary, but also go back to this moment in history and sort of relive it and take a step away from where we are now and live the life of JFK and really accompany him through these many moments that shaped him, but also shaped the country we live in now. Well, hey, uh, congratulations on the accomplishment. This is great. We'll have to talk uh, later about the, your next project. Absolutely. Well, Mason, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm so uh, glad to do this with you. My thanks again to Ashton Gleckman. Again, Kennedy will premiere with three of its eight installments on the History Channel at 8 p.m. November 18th, with the other five episodes airing over the next two days. And you can read more about Gleckman's journey as a filmmaker in a profile by IBJ's David Lindquist in the latest issue of IBJ. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few other stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, 
One of the sticking points in the battle between the United Auto Workers and the big three automakers is the UAW's demand that the wave of new electric vehicle plants fall under its contract and pay demands. Neither Ford nor Stellantis has agreed, putting two plans, Stellantis and Samsung SDI plants in Kokomo, squarely in the middle of the melee. Also in this week's issue, Mickey Shuey outlines the differences between mayoral candidates Jefferson Shreve and Joe Hogsett on the use of incentives to spur downtown development. And Dave Lindquist explores the life cycle of public art and specifically how communities deal with the loss of murals. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.